This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. disclaimer here this is going to feel like an odd part of the story but i wanted to give an extra i guess warning or disclaimer uh to let you know that we're going to be talking about a strange time in u.s history where genocide was openly practiced um there's no easy way to cover this part of the story we've tried to cover it as factually and as clearly as we possibly can in order to facilitate the rest of the story that we'll be telling over the next four parts or so. In going through the Deep Gold series, I looked at a lot of different things about the California gold rush in terms of like financials. And I want to talk about that for a second. I had sent you some uh, different articles. One I pulled from the Smithsonian because I thought it was pretty interesting. In the middle of the research for that, I found the Stephen Boggan article. It's from September 30th, 2015. And it, it's just, the, it's titled Gold Rush California was much more expensive than today's tech boom California. And along the way, you've sort of talked about that, how wild it was. Uh, did you get a chance to look at that? I did. He uh, kind of leads off with his subtitle. He says, back in 1849, a dozen eggs would cost you what would be the equivalent of $90. And it says, if you've ever wondered how California's modern day rush for riches in Silicon Valley compares with the gold rush of 1849, look no further than the cost of buying a home. Glenn Kelman, CEO of real estate startup Redfin, recently warned of an exodus of tech specialists from Silicon Valley as the average price of property there is topping a million dollars, more than double the averages in Seattle, Boston, and Portland. He says it would be fair to say that property prices rose during the gold rush too, but that is where the comparison would have to end because back in 1849, they climbed to levels that would make modern Californians weep. The writer Bayard Taylor arrived in San Francisco by ship in the summer of 1849 and feared that nobody would believe him when he wrote about the gold rush economy in his dispatches for the New York Tribune. And also, the the article writer here, Steve Boggan, he has a book called Gold Fever, where he writes about all sorts of things gold rush related. And it's a pretty good read. It's not really related to what I'm talking about here, but I wanted to mention that while I'm on his uh, article. When the average wage for a laborer in New York might be one or two dollars, Bayard Taylor was astounded to discover that individual hotel rooms were rented to professional gamblers for upwards of $10,000 a month. In today's dollars, if we were just to look at that for a comparison, that would be like paying $300,000 a month for a room. 
The quote was, one citizen of San Francisco died insolvent to the amount of $41,000 the previous autumn. His administrators were delayed in settling his affairs, and his real estate advanced so rapidly in value that after all of his debts had been paid, meaning the $41,000 had been cleared, his heirs had a yearly income of $40,000 from his real estate. These facts were indubitably attested. Everyone believed them, yet hearing them talked of daily as matters of course, one at first could not help feeling as if he had been eating of the insane root. So according to consumer data uh, website Numbio, San Francisco's today face grocery bills and rents about 21% higher than the national average. And keep in mind, this is in 2015 that this is coming out. That is an unfortunate figure, but it seems negligible when compared with the prices facing shocked gold seekers as they arrived in the early days of the rush, when almost everything, tools, equipment, food, clothing, was in short supply. According to Edward Good Buffum, the author of Six Months in the Gold Mines in 1850, he described having a breakfast of bread, cheese, butter, and sardines, two bottles of beer with a friend, and getting a bill for $43. In 1850. So today's equivalent to that means that that meal of bread, cheese, butter, sardines, two bottles of beer with a friend, uh, it would actually be, in the article they say $1,200, I ran it again, it's actually more like $1,500 in 2023. There were reports of canteens that charged a dollar for a slice of bread or two if it was buttered. Uh, which was, that would be around $60 today. And a dozen eggs might cost you $90 at today's prices. Uh, a pickaxe would be the equivalent of $1,500. A pound of coffee would go for $1,200. A pair of boots as much as $3,000, when today you could get a decent pair for around $120. Every newcomer in San Francisco is overtaken with a complete sense of bewilderment, wrote Taylor. The mind, however, however it may be prepared for an astonishing condition of affairs, cannot immediately push aside its old instincts of value and ideas of business, letting all past experiences go for naught and casting all its faculties. Never had I had so much difficulty in establishing satisfactorily to my own senses the reality of what I saw and heard. Um, and they go on and they talk more and more about how they were able to sell things that made no sense to sell for a large amount of money. And they compare it to the fact that the equivalence of the businessmen back then, some of which are like, realistically, they are some of the best known business people today. I mean, Levi Strauss. I have Levi's. Do you have Levi's? I don't, but I, I mean, I, I realize that Levi is a leading gene maker. And so he was a Jewish immigrant from Germany, and he identified the need for tough clothing in the gold fields. Uh, Henry Wells and William Fargo, they set up banking services in San Francisco to convert gold. John Studebaker's automobile empire began with him making wheelbarrows for California miners. This is a huge deal, but I can't help. Like I was a little struck by your response, but also your response makes perfect sense. And I thought that it was such a scam. Yeah, 
It is all a scam. So, and, you know, if you take into consideration, like, everything you're, everything that's happening then, like, this guy has a, I don't know what this was written in, but a writer who was visiting the gold rush era, right? And he was there and it was happening. Another part of the article says that some miners actually made some gold in the very early days, right? And most of the people that made the most money, they were the ones that mined the miners. Right. And so the women selling, uh, they were baking and selling pies to the men who were working in the gold fields. They made $18,000. And then when... It says also that the man who foresight, the foresighted man who arrived in San Francisco in July 1849 with 1,500 old newspapers, which he sold to miners hungry for news from back east for a dollar each. And so you've got a situation where there's this bubble. And of course, like my educational background is in economics. And so I have a, I have an, like, I guess an okay understanding of this stuff. But it always amazes me that it, it can be so shocking. I don't know about you, but I feel like in the tiny little bit anybody's ever said anything to me about the gold rush, uh, I feel like everybody knows that there was a gold rush. There's actually been like several sort of mini rushes, I guess. But I don't think anybody has... I don't think people just like normally see it for what it really was. Yeah. I think there's a presumption that like a whole bunch of people went and mined gold and actually got rich. Yeah. And that's not what happened at all. It was creating a set of circumstances where they could gouge people. And one of the fundamentals of economics, and I know this is a true crime podcast, but one of the fundamentals of economics is that you can take any tangible object and it is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And when you are in it to win it and it's financially motivated, you can hike up the price, which is gouging, of course. However, as long as people are paying that price, there's no incentive for the seller to come down. And so that's just very basics how the economy works, right? If everybody had a bunch of eggs, $90 dozens of eggs. Okay. Let's say that, you know, I don't know what could happen to make that occur, but I don't know about you. I just wouldn't buy eggs, Right. Yeah, I just wouldn't be eating eggs that time at that point okay, in time. Except if you know we're in the 1850s and we are in a completely different place across the country, and we have no other option. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, if you had sunk like everything you had into a dream of being part of this gold rush and 
you had focused on the optimistic part of it that was coming through, like the very slow going news channels and like there are other people there too. So like you can't be wrong, right? I mean, everybody's going to go get their treasures and fortune, except, you know, no, they're not. But, you know, if you're there and you've got to eat, right? I bet a lot of people lost a lot of weight. Yeah, no kidding. I don't really think that was an issue at this time in life, um, which is ironic, but... It really was uh, some innovative people that, you know, do, do you think what they were doing was wrong? Like gouging? I mean, I think the same concept exists today in terms of uh, supply and demand. Like there is like a basic economic law at play here that in scarcity, this can happen. I, I think it's wrong on some levels, but do you because I have a comment on that, and I don't know how far left it's going to steer us. Well, like I said, the way that capitalistic economies work is that things are worth what people will pay for them. Yeah. And so it's interesting because you would think that that kind of cost would curtail the influx of people. And just to be clear, we've said it, but I want to make sure we say it again. The gold rush didn't make everyone rich. It just made a couple people rich. And it wasn't actually the gold that made those few people rich. There was a discovery of gold. Correct. But it, I think that curtailing, so uh, how do I put this? Okay, once you've sunk everything that you have into getting out there, because, you know, California was not settled at this point. I mean, it wasn't even a state at some points during this, right? Correct. Um, Once you've put everything you had into getting out there, because we're talking about, like, really rough roads to travel. I mean, not even roads, right? Paths to travel. It wasn't as simple as just hightailing it back out of there so you're kind of stuck i mean there you could go elsewhere i guess but like you don't have any knowledge except what has been told to you and so if you are like oh i'm gonna be the one to go and find that gold right and you got it in your head you're gonna do it and then you get out there and like you endure it well before you even know it you're upside down, right? I mean, $90 for a dozen eggs. But if that's what's available, right? And I and so it's a sign of like just sort of how things worked back then that there wasn't this instantaneous communication. It wasn't a situation where you could be like, oh, wow, this is a scam. Hop back on a plane and head back to where you came from. Completely different situation. It is. And it's happening at a time... That for lack of a better word, the the bigger cost here isn't actually all of the money. And there's no good segue for like one of my biggest problems with what is known as the conquest of California. While you've got all this happening in the gold fields in 1850, something had begun happening in 1846 that I think you and I both have expressed separately that there's something about the entitlement of the time where the human cost 
is absolutely unfathomable. Do you think that would be the right way to say it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Weirdly enough, if you go, like, look at this topic, like, most of the topics that you'll find around this, they call this time in California history a series of California Indian wars. And there are tons of wars and battles in the polite historical description. But what's really happening from about 1846 to about 1873 is that dozens of thousands of Native people are being pretty indiscriminately massacred by incoming people and people who are going to call California their land. Depending on what source you read, historically, it's all downplayed. Oh, it's only 2,000 people that died or 4,000 people that died. And then you get the other side of it, which like the Native American Heritage Commission, they state numbers in the hundreds of thousands. We don't know the answer. What we do know is that the gold did something to people that if it were to happen today, like it would, I'm going to call it the California genocide is happening during the gold rush. And this is a time when indigenous peoples are being killed by private citizens, settlers from other places and United States government agents. And it's immediately following the conquest of the of Alta California or the California campaign, which was something you had mentioned related to the Mexican-American War. So the idea was when it started that this huge number of influx people were going to live alongside what we will say are native Californians. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. We see a huge uptick in acts of enslavement, kidnapping, rape, child separation, displacement. It's one of the worst times documented in history on the West Coast of the United States. And it, like you said, it's early United States. California is just moving into becoming a settlement, and it will become a state. But the population of indigenous people during this time was something thought to be between 150 to 200,000 people. And it drops to around 15,000 people by the year 1900. Now, it's not all blatant massacres that are doing that. There is disease brought in with all these new people because of the constant stress uh, farms don't get kept up and there's starvation that happens. And then there are low birth rates that happen in addition to that. So the population is not repopulating itself. But particularly during the gold rush, it's estimated that between 10,000 and 27,000 natives were taken in and used as forced labor or slaves by settlers of California. And a lot of those people are attached back to the money that was made 
in the gold rush times. The state of California used its institutions to favor the rights of settlers, particularly white settlers, over the rights of indigenous persons. And that essentially dispossessed and dislocated the natives. So getting back up to the gold rush, there's some key events that happen in the timeline ahead of it. 1769, the Spanish colonizers had moved in to California, and what they did was establish a series of mission outposts, which were essentially religious outposts. They were established between 1769 and 1833, and they were all over. These are primarily Catholic priests that are running local Franciscan orders. This leads to the forced conversion and enslavement of the first round of indigenous peoples and it's recorded that way. But this is not really a massacre time. This is more of like an entitlement time where they think, oh, they live here. I'll just use them for work. 1821 to 1823, Mexico becomes independent from Spain by fighting them. They take control of California, but they continue to use the Spanish government's policies of forced labor and conversion of indigenous peoples. So essentially, they continue to slavery. Finally, in 1846, up until 1847, we have the Mexican-American War leading to the annexation of California by the United States. And then settlers in the U.S. military form an alliance. They get joined by some indigenous people during this time, but the military had murdered a lot of people along the way who would have been considered native or indigenous people. 1848, we have the beginning of this massive horde of settlers who are coming in to the gold rush. And from 1848 to 1850, pretty much unfettered for that period of time, the settlers, depending on how you read it, they're either intimidated by the local population or they're convinced that every person who goes missing or who is killed, who is a settler or a white person, is killed by Indians, basically. Would you, is that kind of like how you saw a lot of this? Well, that's the, that is the impression that is given, yes. And what I discovered in looking at all of this is a lot of the settlers are stupid people. They may be smart in terms of something, but understanding what was happening around them was not their, it wasn't their forte. And I say that because there's a lot of misunderstandings early and a lot of assumptions made that lead to a lot of people dying. And I want to focus on a couple of those things happening. If I've said anything that you think is wrong about this, I just feel like this is an important time in history. Sure. Um, well, a lot of people did die, uh, just like initially because this would be post-Revolutionary War, but yes. pre-Civil War. Yes. Just barely pre-Civil War. And uh, so, you know, there was a lot of death. The settlement of the United States by the Europeans on the East Coast, and then the, the migration to the West Coast was largely fueled by the gold rush, but it wasn't the only thing. Uh, people had, you know, began to wander out that way as the East Coast was filling up. Uh, and when I say that, I mean like people who were arriving from uh, primarily England uh, by way of the Atlantic Ocean, right? Because that that's the way that 
that immigration was happening, right? Historically, what I was going to say a few seconds ago that I didn't say was that I don't feel like this would happen now. Can you, and, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Like, so well, because, like, you said, like, you couldn't, it, it is an unfathomable thing. But if you look back through history and sort of how historically civilizations, you know, were formed and crumbled and fell, and then, you know, it's a cycle, right? It never ends. And so people are constantly moving and settling and taking over and there's war for territory. And it's all of that stuff happening that has put us in a position now where like, we don't want that happening. Um, At least not like with massive, you know, casualties involved. One of the things I've always, and I'm not saying what happened was fair. I, but one of the things I always think about is, Part of why it's such a, like, pressing, vivid thing uh, now is because there's uh, a lot more record of what happened, even though there's not a lot of record, there's a lot more record of what happened than some of the other, you know, hostile takeovers of land that occurred. And so we have to just kind of keep that in mind. Now, basically... The, I'm going to say United States, it, it was the, the colonists at the time and the settlers, but so the non-native people, they were absolutely staking claims to land and they were going through a process. The natives had already staked claims to land. Correct. And those were not, they were not thought to be valid. Yeah, they were ignored. Right. And so the the government, the political side of this is there was a lot of attempts for, you know, something to be done. And this is attempts from people who are like nowhere near where it's happening, putting out different things like this is what needs to happen and that's what needs to happen. And, And it's not actually occurring. Right. And so when you get down to you know, there, there were some things trying to uh, be worked out. But when you've got a situation where you've got the settlers settling and you've got the natives having already, like, this is our land. What are you doing settling here, right? It creates conflict, obviously. And it became this sort of, like, occupying the land was a finite thing where, like, only one could do it. And so uh, there was a lot of back and forth. Now, I don't know how much the people who were settling ran in and just killed everybody to kick them off the land, right? Yeah. So it gets really complex. And depending on whose version of the record you read, the native record says they came in and killed us. The colonist record says a couple of things. Either we went in and we had to remove them because they wouldn't leave, or we went in and they like we were trying to be friendly and they attacked us. So we killed them all or we, and and like it, it, depending on the situation and which particular incident you're talking about, you can read two different sides of the record, but for the most part, a lot of what's happened, like if you go back to 1846, which is where the recorded massacres in the California genocide start, John Fremont is a captain, his men, they attack the Winton people. So this guy is a, you know, he ultimately 
ends up being one of the first politicians. But he is essentially a military officer who comes into this area, which is populated by uh, several related indigenous people's groups. And they take out on the Sacramento River on one day, they kill 200 Winton people. Then two months later, they're in Sutter Butts and he attacks an entire village and kills 14 Potwin people. So they're a branch of the Winton people, but Fremont doesn't know that. Fremont doesn't know what's happening. And he has all sorts of justifications later on. He actually becomes the first Republican nominee for president of the United States in 1856. So his actions of 10 years earlier, they're viewed as like historical heroism in some regards. They're not. They're massacres. He is straight up going in and killing people. And in many instances, it's very cowardly. And I'm going to say that and I'm going to repeat it. It's very cowardly because the first people they killed were frequently women and children. Now, later on, what they describe that as is that these people who were, they were literally just going about their day when Fremont and his men came up and other groups that do this. They, the, the way it's written up in historical records is they use the, the women and children as shields. Man, they didn't know y'all were coming. If they knew you were coming, it would have been a whole different ballgame. For the most part, early on, that's in the 1840s. So you have about 10 or 12 of these massacres that happened in the 1840s, the, the late 1840s. And we have good records on probably six or eight of them. Largely, these settlers that are doing this uh, are, up until about 1850, they're mostly attached to the United States Army. And it's really a group of really terrible officers who have no idea what they're doing up until about 1850, 1851. And then the miners start doing it, or the settlers, or the new colonists, whatever you want to say. That's because there was an increased pressure in 1851. But largely people, including like Nathaniel Lyon is in this mix. Edward Kern would be in there. These are Union Army officers later on who are fighting the Confederacy of the United States. And they're, they're held up today as war heroes. And I'm telling you right now, they were just cowards who killed people who weren't defending themselves, uh, largely. Do you want me to explain a little more what was going on with, I'm, I'm going to go into one of these, but, but there's one weird thing that's happening in here. I want to talk about, and I didn't know if you had more on this. No, go ahead. These massacres start happening and California tries to do the right thing at one point with the, the government enacting the California act for the government and protection of Indians. It is enacted by the first session of the California state legislature, uh, signed into law by the first governor of California, a guy named Peter Burnett. So they decided the best thing they can do with the indigenous peoples to protect them on April 22nd, 1850, is we are going to make them slaves. Because that'll protect them. 
we'll just make them all slaves and then they'll have white people to protect them. They also amend this later on. And if this bill finally gets killed in 1863, it doesn't stop the problems that it caused. But essentially what this bill did, in spite of its name, which is the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians, in spite of its name, what it was really about was make making native peoples manageable. Uh, they had it facilitated the removal and displacement of all those groups I just sort of mentioned in passing, a bunch of other groups, and it actually destroyed multiple generations of language and culture for these groups. This legislation, even though it sort of bounced around for a while, it eventually gets kicked all together, but it takes till about 2015 before California realizes. And, and I, and in case you missed me saying that, cause I said it quickly, that's 2015 is when they go back through these records and acknowledge that maybe the act for the government protection of Indians was a terrible thing for us to have done. And it is like, it's one of the worst possible uh, things that happened during this time. Okay. I'm way off topic for a second. I am going to bring all this back around. Do you have anything to say about like this portion of things? Cause I, I kind of like talked a lot there. I'm sorry for that. Um, no, I, I mean, the only thing I would add is that, uh, if you keep in mind, so, okay, all of this is terrible and I'm, and I'm not, I don't you know have to keep repeating it, but like just from a factual basis at, the time that that act was signed into place, like that would have been before slavery had been abolished in the United States. It was. And so it's not unexpected to me, right? It's not a mindset that I go, wow, I can't believe they did that. Except, you know, wow, I can't believe they did that. I can't see them doing it now from the, I mean, cause it's ridiculous. Right. But at the time and place that we're at, it doesn't shock me in the least that they did it because it was a bunch of, you know, entitled white guys. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and if anybody thinks I'm underplaying this, I promise the Cliff Notes version of this that you can find online either. I, I think if you just Google Act for the Government and Protection of Indians, um, it is a fascinating read into human history. Uh, it is really uh, the 20 the uh, provisions or so of that act are some of the most egregious things I've ever read. And in my mind, I, 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 I find it difficult to both understand what's going on. I think, I think you're saying that makes more sense and it doesn't excuse it. And that's the best way to it say it. It doesn't excuse it at all. Um, but something that is important to remember is, uh, you know, for one thing, we have a completely hindsight view, right? Absolutely. That, that is true. And uh, so that changes everything. And if you you think about it, I don't know what the uh, what the different uh, Native American tribes and the people, the communities. I don't know what their solution to the settlers was. Do you mean what well, they wanted to do or like what? Well, like, politically, the United States, like you've got Congress and the Senate and, you know, California eventually becomes a state. They've got a governor and a Senate and a House, right? 
and they're um they're all trying to to do something right yeah what are we gonna do to make all this war stop right and so we incorporated a solution it's not a good solution okay but they did something because i i feel like at the point that they were at what was the solution oh i don't know the answer to that i you know but do you see what i'm saying like something had to be yes. done because I have a feeling the solution was for the Native Americans was like to kill everybody or to put them on a boat back to wherever it was they came from. Okay, I see what you're saying. Like it's it's interesting the words you choose there because don't they echo a lot of weird things for you in terms of how people treat people today? So much. Oh now, and, but I mean, okay. If there were like these these massacres happening in the 1840s through the through it, it, they go on for a while. These happening are worse than any mass shooting you've ever heard of. Absolutely. Um a lot of this though is like one trigger happy dude that's over a company of men who are listening to him. Yeah. And that's, so I wanted to pick, I picked something to put in here for, for what we're doing with this deep gold thing. I picked something to put in here that sort of had some alternative explanations for just how stupid the settlers and the early people were in their actions. And I'm not, taking the side of indigenous folks. I'm not blasting them. They really weren't even aware of what was going on. It really is a terrible thing uh, that happened. Well, we called it a terrible game of telephone happening that, that become the inciting events for well, a and lot that's of what us. we're left with. Yeah, yeah. Like us trying to look back on it, we're reading and it's like, what is happening? And some of it is, so compared to like trying to find, you know, like when the Roman Empire fell, like we actually have a substantial amount of, you know, records, right? Um, but the problem is they're very inconsistent and it gets shaped and it's it's a, you're going to have a bias, right, in, you know, who's right, who's wrong, whatever, right? Because either way you look at it, it's, all of it is atrocious. However, if you think about, like, what's actually happening, and I think the difference is the fact that we have these, like, records that give some of the story, and then over time they get slanted with a new narrative or a, bolstered narrative and then things get tweaked to make them more interesting right yes. which there's nothing wrong with tweaking history to make it more interesting until it gets completely blown out of proportion right right a lot of the things that happen i i don't want to negate uh the loss that occurred but i do always think to myself like what was the solution here I, I'm with you. Like I, I, mean, pick, 
I honed in on this one because it was one where I could look at it and go, all right, maybe that's what we're misunderstanding about all of this. Do you think that there would have ever been a world where the United States stayed the Native Americans' land? You mean, like, do you mean, like, like, do we divvy this up and split it? Well, in 1850? Is that what you're thinking? The premise is that they were here first, that it was their land, right? It literally was. No, they, no, I got you. I understand yeah. that they lived on it. And they, like, but they're like, okay, this is our land, right? And so if it wasn't the settlers of, like, you know, 1850, I mean, do they, do you think that in 2023 it would still just be a bunch of woods? No, but like, I get what you're saying, but like those woods held, like some of these, I don't know if you've seen some of these pictures. Some of these pictures are villages. Like they may not look like a house like they were building in San Francisco and what people pictured as a house at the time, but it was a house to somebody who was living in it. Right. No, I, I gotcha. I hear you. I'm just saying like, it was, it, it was an inevitable thing. Well, so I went along, I tried to pick, and you found a great starting point for this. So thank you for that. I tried to pick something that we could just talk about in an overview, how some of this went down. And I picked April 23rd of 1852. And you actually went and found the explainer for this. Which is amazing, by the way. I can't believe you found this. So this is from the Sacramento Daily Union, Volume 3, Number 342, dated April 26th of 1852. This is three days after what the story I'm going to tell you about. And here's what it says. Mr. Anderson, a butcher in Weaverville, up in Trinity County, was killed by the Indians on the 16th, and a Spaniard name not given. So... Two people are killed. The courier says, in consequence of these out- outrages, the citizens of Trinity are forming themselves into companies for the purpose of giving the Indians of that section such chastisement as they merit. Two companies, we understand, have already been organized. George Butler and James Turner, with two other men, started up Winter Creek about eight miles from Weaverville on a prospecting tour. The party took with them only 10 days of provisions and have been absent five weeks. It is supposed that the whole party has been killed by the Indians. So this is from the time period. Right, and that was published. This is published. It's like, it's, it's two different, like, so we have the publication I just read you and the referenced Courier publication. So two different publications at the time were talking about this. And this is how it gets written up if you go and read about it today. And this is not very long. I promise I'm not going to keep everybody forever on this Deep Gold series, but this is important. This is Bridge Gulch Massacre. The Bridge Gulch Massacre, also known as the Hayfork Massacre or the Natural Bridge Massacre, was in response to the killing of Colonel John Anderson by the Wintu. Americans track the Wintu to a part of Hayfork Creek south of Hayfork Valley known as Bridge Gulch. 
And then there's a note out online and then they also bring over to the Wikipedia that the Winchu called this area Kuxikopsi, meaning skinned hide of animal, where the Winchu had made camp. They waited until early morning before attacking to ensure that nobody could escape. When daylight broke, the Americans attacked the Wintu, who were just beginning to awaken. More than 150 Wintu people were killed, with only about five children who ran or scattered during the attack surviving. Descendants of those massacred have stated that about 600 Wintu were massacred, and a few survivors escaped by hiding in nearby caves. Those Wintu who were killed in the massacre were not responsible for Colonel John Anderson's death. Colonel John Anderson was alleged to have been killed by Wintu from a different group. All right. Now, they have some interesting stuff in the wiki for this, and I'm going to bring that up here because it's important for me. Native Americans in California experienced decades of genocide as the white settlers started to move from the East and the Midwest. Miners, ranchers, other settlers and business people, they flooded into this region and they took up stakes occupying lands that already belonged to people living there. More and more white people arrived and Native Americans were forced from their home places and the most valuable lands. And this created conflicts. In addition to the loss of land and resources and the conflicts over new settlements, the Native Americans suffered from introduced diseases. They were subject to violence and murder at the hands of the newcomers, who were sometimes aided or led by U.S. military. Legal loopholes, or the absence of a strong local judicial system, prevented the white killers from ever being brought to justice. Tall tales and rumors circulating by words of mouth or by the press contributed to mass participation in the killings and galvanized people's tacit consent to those killings. While mid-19th century California law did not explicitly permit the killing of Native Americans, it also prevented any non-white witnesses providing evidence against white defendants. According to California state law, the punishment for stealing livestock was 25 lashes and a $200 fine. Many white settlers apparently found such a measure to be too lenient and not enough to deter the Indians from stealing their livestock. They would raid Indian villages and execute men and women on the spot. More gruesome still, they often put down the children and the infants as well. This was clearly a violation of state law and outright murder, but unfortunately, because of the loopholes and widespread support for these killings, these men were never prosecuted by law, and most of these crimes are only loosely recorded. The white settlers often find it convenient to portray Indians as subhuman and inferior to white people, and in this way, it became justifiable in their conscience to kill their fellow human beings of this other race. Indians are frequently presented and perceived as savages and seen as living in misery. As a result, killing Indians was another way to, quote, stop their misery. These notions may partially explain the indiscriminate killing of Native men and women and children in California after disputes in land settlements erupted. The white settlers saw themselves as superior. As a result, they saw themselves as having a manifest destiny to hold all the land near the Pacific Ocean. 
They sincerely believed they could make better use of the land by farming. This land would be wasted, left in the hands of Indians, who in some cases were also farming. Accounts and rumors described Indians as bloodthirsty killers, helping to demonize the Indians in the minds of local white people. That is one of the worst times in American history. And I don't think we're ever really going to get over that. Well, you know, one thing can be said is um, nobody from that time is alive any longer. No. On any of And it's all the descendants fighting it out. The descendants. Right. You're right. And um, it's, there are some records. It's not, it's not very well documented, but it's one of the most, well documented it comparatively it's well documented right and so that it's like they give a little bit it's very disheartening right to sort of hear about like what's happening and but if you look towards different sources and and try to piece it together it is like playing a really bad game of telephone it really is. And so what's interesting is one of the reasons that we have a lot of these records is because the U.S. military at the time didn't think they were doing anything wrong. So they recorded it. And some of it's recorded in field reporting and with braggadocia. Like they think that they think that they were doing something good in these massacres early on. But really what they were doing is committing mass murder. Which is terrible. Right. It shocks the conscience is what it does. Right. Because, like, how could you possibly do that? Well, it there's a reason they called it the Wild Wild West. Right. And everything that I've ever, that's not historical, that I've heard referenced as, like, you know, the Wild West, it's it's made light of it. Right? There's it is. A- Even in old Western, like, spaghetti Westerns that you could see movies about this. Like, it was no joke, right? No. Um, This was a battle that went on and on and on. And there was never going to be a situation where it was going to end fairly according to the, like, I don't feel like the natives were ever going to say, oh, this was fair, right? And I don't know that uh, the settlers were ever going to say, like, oh, this was fair, right? No, they were never going to say it was fair. Uh, Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a series of specific events that happened during the California gold rush that affect these settlers as they try to leave. And those events are going to lead all the way to today. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at 
uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXCESS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go, they're perfect for travel, and anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXCESS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-XS. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee. But the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently. But one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. 
I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. 
it's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is true crime access. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding new era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention, New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime access.